And as we come to God's word, let's just open with a word of prayer here. Father, we just thank you this morning uh, for your word. We thank you, God, for, for mothers that you've given us who taught, who taught us the word of God. I thank you, Father, for the mothers that are in this room, and maybe they are first-generation Christians. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just burden them with the mission of training their children, of sharing the word of God, of teaching the truth and the realities of Jesus Christ and the stories of the, the Bible to their children. Today, Lord, we just want to honor our mothers and the ladies here. And God, as we come to your word this morning, we, we get to tackle this great passage of scripture about marriage, about men and women, about husbands and wives and the marriage relationship. Lord, we just come to your word right now. We want to open up our hearts to you. And we invite you to speak to us, Lord. We pray that you would open the eyes and the ears of our hearts to see the wonderful thing, things that are in your words. I, I pray, God, that your spirit would anoint that which is spoken and just make it very real to, to be each of our hearts today. And so, God, we just ask your blessing upon the teaching of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've called this message the, the Mutual Ministry of Respect and Honor. You turn to the book of First Peter and some of the history behind its writing was uh, that we know that, that Peter was writing to obviously first century Christians who were living and experiencing something new in, in living for Christ and being a part of the church. No different from you or I, they were, they were seeking to honor the Lord, whether that be in uh, their relationships to human institutions like government like kings, emperors, whatever it may be, or whether it be dealing with a master if you were a slave. And Peter was writing to a time when believers were suffering greatly in the midst of the Roman Empire for, their, for following Jesus Christ. And so as he talks about how they're to respond in certain places of life, whether it be human institutions or working with an employer, it's natural that he also at this point in this letter addresses uh, the marriage relationship. Now, if you're married, you know that sometimes difficult when you put a marriage into difficult circumstances and difficult times, that's when a marriage really gets put to the test. And we live in this time in history when I would say, you know, there are a number, the number of resources available for married couples, you know, books on marriage, uh, marriage counselors, marriage seminars, I would say it's probably unmatched in history how much information is floating out there about how to have success and make your marriage work. And yet in our culture, what do we see? We see divorce rates that are probably unparalleled in, in history. And, you know, it's never even been higher among Christians. And so, you know, even in a marriage, when you put together a husband and wife who are Christians, that's not a guarantee that a marriage will survive. And so what about when you've got a situation where one partner is a believer and the other is not? Well, then the situation gets even harder. See, success in marriage, as we know, is not automatic as soon as, 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 soon as you say, I do, and you uh, share your vows with one another. Now, the cool thing about the Bible is this, you know, when you cruise the pages of the New Testament, you find this, that the scripture keeps teaching on marriage really simple. It's really practical. According to the scriptures, you know, it's not impossible to have a good marriage, but it's kind of like exercise. The hardest part is actually doing it. You know, you, you can talk about exercise all you want. You know, the hardest part when I actually want to go and get exercise is putting on my runners and getting out the door. Once I'm rolling, you're rolling and wedding uh, marriage is kind of like that. And so the stuff that we're going to talk about and that we're going to see in this passage of scripture this morning, I would say is this, it's really doable. It's, it's stuff that you can uh, do in your life. And I guess the fact of the matter is we just need to do it. Like the Nike slogan, just do it. And so Peter first in this conversation addresses the wives. Check it out. Verse one and two, he says this. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that if some do not obey the word. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, this is an interesting passage of scripture. And in Peter's instructions uh, for wives, 
I would say are good, they're good instructions for the unmarried as well, or those who are hoping to be future, you married in the future. But what's interesting about these instructions is that you'll notice this, that Peter was actually specifically speaking to women who were in a married situation and their spouse was not a believer, not saved. He says specifically women whose wives who have husbands who do not obey the word. In other words, these instructions are for, for ladies that have a spouse who's not a Christian. Now, scripture is really clear. So let's talk about this for a second. Scripture is really clear about the marriage between a believer and a non-believer. And the scripture just tells us this. Don't be unequally yoked. A believer should not marry an unbeliever. And the logic is kind of simple. Let's just put it together. I mean, just take it for what it is. When you have a Christian and a non-Christian and they come together in the union of marriage, the most important thing for one person, which should be Christ, which the other person doesn't have, is now missing and that couple does not share that Christian worldview and value system and all those things. And the result is, obviously, there can be certain marital strife and issues. It's inevitable when... A believer marries a non-believer. But what do you do when you're already married and one spouse becomes a follower of Christ and the other is not? Well, then what? See, that's a different thing. And that was the issue going on in the first century and in the church. Now, what do I do? I'm married. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I've gotten saved and my husband isn't a believer. What do I do? I follow Christ and he does not. Do I pack my bags and get out of this marriage? Do I force him to come to church gatherings? Do I shove the gospel down his throat? What do we do? How do we balance this and make this work? And so in Peter's day, this was a big deal. It was a big deal for this reason. In that culture, it was, you know, unthinkable, absolutely unthinkable that a woman would practice her own religious faith apart from her husband. You think about it, you could turn right to the book of Acts and you see it happen. What happened when Cornelius, the Roman centurion, got saved? Peter came to his house and preached the gospel. And the scripture tells us that Cornelius and his wife and his family became followers of Jesus Christ and they were all baptized. His wife and kids got saved and they followed him in faith. So what about the woman who is married and comes to faith in Jesus Christ Now, what does she do in this marriage with her husband? Well, Peter says something that might surprise you. He says this, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. Now that word subject is also translated later in this text, submission. Proper submission in the marriage relationship flows Um, from the principles that we saw last week in chapter two, in the same sort of pattern, just like we submit to government and human institutions that God has put in place. We submit to employers or if we're slaves, we submit to masters. And the key to submission is this, is that it's not just about actions, but it's about the attitude of the heart as we talked about last week. And Peter pointed us last in the text at the end of chapter two to Jesus Christ and his example submitted to his father. Now, when Peter uses the word subject, you need to know this because it's a word that we, we get, we get hung up on this submission. Ah, it's, it seems so offensive to the flesh. You need to know this. Some things about the word submission. First of all, it's a military term for the sake of order. There must be structure and there must, there must be headship. That's why we have government. That's why we have authority. That's why we have leaders. The word subject, when you translate it, it, it's just, it means to organize something, to arrange it under a certain structure. It's a military term. You, you arrange troops into divisions and they're fashioned under the command of a leader. The same word in non-military use carries this attitude of voluntarily giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. There's so people I would say, you know, they get in a huff about this idea of, and they even hate that word submission. And what happens is, is we go into this discussion and try to defend equality of men and women. 
And what you need to know is, as we come to this text today, is that this is not a discussion on equality. That's not what Peter's talking about. But order. See, equality and innate value and worth is not what Peter is talking about. And as soon as you turn this text and twist it into a topic, into the top, towards the topic of equality, you lose what Peter is communicating. You have to consider this a military instruction. Does that make sense? You need to know this. The gospel is totally countercultural. The New Testament was countercultural. Jesus, like no religious leader before, promoted the equality of women. It was interesting when we were watching this movie the last few weeks, a few people came to me and they're like, hey man, there was women following Jesus and the disciples. I'm like, yeah, that's what the New Testament says. They weren't counted amongst the 12, but they were in there with the 70. Scripture talks all about it in the Gospels. Jesus was blowing away the culture of his day and women were following him and he was having friendships with them and teaching them and they were his disciples just like the men. And the example of Christ set the pattern for the early church. And so the question therefore is not whether women are equal with men because the New Testament's clear on that. The issue is whether such equality is compatible with the call for wives to submit to their husbands. Does that make sense? Well, it's clear. The scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33, that the submission of wives to husbands is grounded in theology. It's grounded in who God is. It's grounded in the doctrines of God. It's grounded as we see in the relationship that Christ has with his church. It's not an accommodation to culture. See, the submission of wives to husbands mirrors the church's submission to Christ. And so as followers of Christ, we should just accept it as the norm. This is a biblical truth that transcends culture. Does that make sense? And the principle of submission is seen in many different places in scripture. Think about this, you know, for a few moments, Jesus submitted to his parents. Oh, he's holding the universe together. And yet God put him in the structure of a family and he submitted to a mother and to a father. Was his value any less? No, but it was the structure God had placed him in and how God had designed it. The scripture tells us that the disciples came back after Jesus had commissioned. They said, even the demons submit to us in your name. Peter told us citizens should submit to government. The Bible tells us that the universe and everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will submit to Jesus Christ and they will confess him as Lord. Christians are told to submit to their leadership. You know, I have a pastor. I have a pastor, Pastor Ed Hickey, 20 minutes down the road. He is my pastor. I come under submission to that man. I love him. I listen to him. Servants should submit to their masters. The scripture tells us the church should submit to Jesus. And the scripture tells us wives should submit to their husband. Now, a different function does not suggest lesser beings. Again, because I, I think this is so important. This is where we miss this idea. See, I, I love this. I'm going to read to you a direct quote that I, I stumbled across. It says this. Those who argue that a different function implies inequality betray a secular worldview that identifies worth and stature and the exercise of authority. Let's, let me read that to you again. Those who argue that a different function implies inequality betray a secular worldview that identifies worth with stature and the exercise of authority. You know, there's a great example for us. It's called the Godhead, the Trinity, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. Jesus lived in submission to his father. He said, I don't do anything unless he speaks. And then I do it. It's a great example. So Peter says this. 
Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their lives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Here's the cool thing. You can be in submission to a non-believing husband and yet you can win him to Jesus Christ. And Peter's not talking about using manipulation. Actually, he uses this play on words saying, that those who disobey the word can actually be won without a word by your conduct. They can be won by your conduct. You know, I was just thinking about this. You know, what is the first tactic that a woman uses when she wants something from a man? It's okay. You can laugh. You can think about it. Words. She uses words. And sometimes when she really wants to get something, it escalates to something we call nagging. <laughs> Let me ask you something, ladies. How does that go for you? You know, and, and I want to make this humorous. You could laugh about it. You know, how does it go? You know, I would say this. Most men, most men like me, like I would put myself in it. I get more stubborn and I dig my heels in the more my wife does that to me. It's not, I don't know. It's just the way men are. Peter says this without a word meant that wives should refrain from from badgering their husbands about the need for conversion. He's saying this, if he's not saved, don't rag on him with your words about the gospel. And I think this is really practical insight into the behavior of men. How are men one? Ladies, this is good stuff. How are men one? Not by words, I'll tell you that. Men are one by conduct. They are. You know, let me tell you the story. About myself a little bit. Twice in my school years, I settled my difference with another man by going to fisticuffs. We, we threw blue blows at one another, and both times it was because certain boundaries were crossed in the midst of that relationship. In one, one situation, I was in grade 12, and this guy thought that he could pick on my younger brother and that it would be okay, and so... We went to blows. In another instance, in elementary school, it was about playground respect. Now, men will understand this, but neither situation was a weird male rage thing. But it was about a matter of respect. And in both instances, something crazy happened, which I, I think about this. I'm like, how did that happen? But it's, it's what happened. My conduct won the respect of that other male. And his conduct won my respect. And you know what happened in both situations? We became friends. What the heck? We went to blows and we became friends. Guys, have you got a story like that? I'm sure many of you, look, the hands went up around the room. That doesn't happen very often at CTK. <laughs> because you win a man when you win his respect. You want to get to know a man, you do something with him. You get in the truck and you go four by four and up the mountain. You want to win a man, you get on the mountain bike and you go in the bush. You watch a hockey game or you go for a hike or you do a physical project like build something or whatever. And men, what they do is this. They observe the character of other men and that's how relationships are built. That's how us dudes function in the workplace, okay? We do not win the respect of others with words. We go to work and men watch us. And we win their respect. Does that make sense? Now the crazy thing is this. How do women build relationships? By talking. You know, over a cup of tea. You know, I don't, I don't know what you girls do. <laughs> I, I don't know. But you can see that, that women build their relationships by talking. That's, you're, you're, you're very verbal. I mean, I don't want to generalize, but it's commonly the way it is. And so you see, you've got this fundamental issue going on. Dudes don't need to talk typically. Let's get down to business, conduct. You'll win my respect. You have my respect, whatever. Ladies need to talk. And so you have this great standoff in marriage, right? And it makes relationships hard. So what does the saved wife do with an unsaved husband? What does she do? 
Wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, oh, that's good, man. I like it. So, so you, you know, if you think, Peter says, look, if you think your words will win that man to Christ, you're dreaming. You're dreaming. Do you see what he's saying? See what's going on here? You want to win that man that you're praying for? Then it's your conduct that will do it, not your words. Your conduct. See, conduct speaks of the manner of your life, your behavior, your actions. Your preaching at him will do no good. Ladies, I would say if you have an unsaved husband, your living before that man is very, very, very important. Your actions, your conduct, how you act and relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it works out in your life. You know, J. Vernon McGee tells this interesting story, and I'm just going to paraphrase it, but he tells a story of a, a woman in his church who would drag her husband. He was not a believer, and she was, and she would drag him to church and drag him and drag him and drag him and drag him. Guy wouldn't become a believer, and she told her pastor, she said, every morning at breakfast with tears, I, I cry, and I tell him, when are you going to become a Christian? And at supper, I cry and I tell him, you know, if you just accept Jesus Christ, you know. And Dr. McGee said this to her. He said, well, how, how's that working? <laughs> it's not working. He won't come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Dr. McGee pointed her to this text and he says, P you know, Peter says that if you can't wish, win your husband with the word, the word, which is interesting because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, but this seems to be kind of a little bit of a unique thing, the way that God's designed it. He says, if you can't win him with the word, then you should start preaching a wordless sermon. And he said, what kind of life are you living before that man? Maybe you need to put a moratorium on speaking the gospel to him at all. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't put on the Christian radio in his presence. Respect him. Now what happened for her was this, is that Jay says she began to discover that there were areas in her life where the gospel was not being seen and that she was not practicing it. And so she began to work on those areas of conduct and action. And she laid aside the preaching of the gospel and began to live the gospel. And in six months, that man gave his heart to Jesus Christ and was saved. You know, wives, all wives, influence the disposition of your husband towards the things of God. Influence him. Why? Because, because how he acts towards God will have a direct influence on you and your marriage and your home and your well-being. And you influence him not with your words, but with your actions. Not manipulation, but respect and pure conduct, Peter says. Because guys, they grab that right away. They see respect and they identify with pure conduct. Let me ask you this. You know, ladies, I'm going to get to the guys later, okay? So sorry, you guys, are, girls are first. A question that I want you to answer in your own heart. Do you respect your husband? Do you respect your husband? Yes or no? Now I'm going to tell you something. Your husband already knows the answer. You don't have to tell him. Men read it. They know it. You don't have to tell him because your conduct betrays you. He knows. The man knows. And if you do not respect him, two things will happen in your, your, your marriage. One is this, there will be confrontation. I told you, that's what a man does. When the boundaries, he can't identify them and he doesn't have respect, he will go to blows to find respect. Now, I'm not talking about physically fighting with your wife, but there'll just be confrontation in your marriage. Anger, fighting, this, that. If there is not that kind of confrontation, there'll be another kind of confrontation. Resistance in a passive form. 
We call it what? Passive aggressiveness. But what you need to know that even passive aggressiveness is a form of confrontation that he is confronting you with. He is acting towards you aggressively by being passive. And what he is trying to do is gain your respect. Now I'm not justifying it. I, you know, like I said, I'm going to deal with men in a bit, but I would say this ladies, do you respect your husband? And if you want to win that man, then what Peter says is really important. You submit to him because you love Jesus Christ and because you want to obey the word of God. Be respectful and pure in your conduct and you won't need to use words and that man will begin to respond to you and he will respond to God as you live for Christ. That's cool, isn't it? I mean, what the Bible just teaches us. See, marriage is kind of like trying to glue two foreign objects together. And whenever you glue two objects together, we know you get, you got to be dealing with clean surfaces and in marriage, dirt and a lack of respect is one of those things that destroys fellowship. Corruption is the enemy of having cohesion in your marriage. Purity and respect are things that will adhese you ladies to your husband. It'll be like glue. And I would say, get serious about your conduct towards that man. And he will respond to you. He will. God's wired him that way. Peter says this in verse three, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There's this different ways. Peter talks about how the world adorns themselves. You know, the doing up of your hair, the wearing of jewelry, you know, the clothing that you wear. And I you look, all those things are important. You know, it's important that you look good for the spouse, for your spouse. Being in style a little bit's okay. You know, I, I'm not a trendsetter, but I did put away the parachute pants that I used to wear in the 1980s, Okay. If you didn't live in the 80s, you missed out on a great era. They're coming back. Parachute pants one day. Darcy will wear them when they come to church. Look, there's nothing wrong with looking good. But what is Peter saying? I would say he's saying this. If you're trying to win a man for Jesus Christ with sex appeal, it ain't going to work. It won't work. There's a singular adornment that a godly woman should put on. And it's the hidden person of the heart. He says it's an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. See that word adornment means to put something in order to arrange it, to make it ready, to prepare it from the Greek word adornment. We get English words like cosmos, which speaks of the order of the universe, the heavens and their order. We also get another word called cosmetics. You know, I was thinking about it, you know, how does, how does a woman adorn herself? But, you know, applying the cosmetics and she gets her face in the mirror and does her little thing. I, I have to say, you know, I, I told Lisa I was going to say, I like watching my wife put on makeup, okay? I, there's something about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking for all the guys, but look at, we like our wives to look nice. And I like you know, sometimes Lisa does this thing. She's done it like all the years we've been married. She sits on the counter and she puts her feet in the sink. And to me, she's like a teenage girl looking in the mirror, doing her, doing her thing. And I, it's attractive. Okay. What can I say? <laughs> you know, she's accomplishing the purpose that she is setting out to do. Now, Peter says this, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter's saying this is another mirror you need to look in, ladies. If you want to put on the gentle spirit, just like you put on your makeup and do your thing in your mirror, there's another mirror that you need to look at. The Bible. James, this is a mirror. Did you know that? The scripture tells us that the word is like a mirror. It says this in James chapter 1, verse 23 through 25. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Because this is a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once again forgets what he was like. But the one who looks perfectly into the law, the law of liberty, 
and perseveres and hears and does not forget, but acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, you know, more attractive than my wife putting on makeup in the mirror is watching her adorn her heart as she spends time with Jesus Christ in the word of God. She's adorning the person of the heart when she spends time in the word. And God says, it's very precious in my sight. It's, it, it's precious. It's, it's interesting, you know, if you go back to First Peter, just watch for that word precious. He talks about Jesus, that that's the father's view of his son, that his son is precious. He talks about this last week, living stones that are being built into what he's fat. It's precious in his sight. And to God, it is precious in his sight when a woman spends time in the word and adorns the lady of the heart and puts on the gentle and meek spirit. Peter's talking about this external adornments versus the hidden internal adornments. And this is important. You know why it's important? Because the outside is fading away. We've we already seen this theme from Peter too. So men are like the flowers of the field and like the grass that fade away. But God's word, it's a seed that's imperishable. And what God does in a woman's heart as she spends time with Jesus Christ and in the word is something that is imperishable, ladies. Look, all this fading away. But what Jesus Christ does in a heart will last forever into eternity. It'll be uncorrupted. It's imperishable. It's not subject to decay. It's immortal. See, this is the life of the resurrected dead. It's eternal life. You're putting on eternal life as you spend time with Jesus. Now, what is that imperishable beauty that the word of God brings to a woman's life? He says, this is a gentle and quiet spirit. I, I would just, just for definition's sake, it's exactly the opposite of a loud woman. You know, whatever you want to determine that. Quietness and gentleness speaks of a woman who is meek. Not weak, but she's meek. She's centered. She's grounded. She knows what she's about and she has a godly perspective. And a woman who learns to cultivate the inner beauty that Jesus Christ brings... A woman who learns to cultivate the inner beauty of a Christ-centered life doesn't have to rely on cheap externals. You know, I would say this. That's why a godly woman naturally practices humility. In the way that she, she practices humility, even in the way that she dresses. You know, she's learned to find her greatest sense of value from God and not how, in how a man responds to her looks. See, that kind of woman is precious in the sight of God. She's of surpassing value. High cost. Proverbs says, give her the praise she's due. I, I, in my mind, when I see that word precious, I think it's like the difference between cheap, cheap perfume and expensive perfume. This is the good stuff. It's precious in the sight of God. Now, what's interesting about this is everything that I've shared with you so far has nothing to do with what a woman says. Do you notice that? And everything to do with conduct. Check out verse five. He continues. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good, do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, again, this word submitting... It's translated subject earlier. It's the exact same Greek word. It's that military word, arranging troops. We're outside of the military context, context, voluntarily uh, having this attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility with the other person, carrying a burden. And so again, as we see this word, I, I, I mean, I want to beat this drum. This is not about equality. It's not. And as soon as we turn it into that, we're going to lose sight of what's happening here. It's about order. You you think about the military application. What happens when soldiers fail to follow instruction? 
more die. That's what happens. Now, Peter says this, for this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham and calling him Lord. You know, we call Abraham the man of faith. He's like one of the great heroes of the Bible, Abraham. But the truth is this. Behind every godly man is a godly woman. You know that, the neck that turns the head saying. And Sarah, you know, Sarah's an interesting character in the scripture. She's, she's kind of a bit of a forgotten person, at least in my mind. In the story of Abraham, she almost seems like this secondary uh, character. But Sarah was a woman of faith. You know, the first thing I think of when I think of Sarah, I think of that story when she was in the tent and the angels came from Abraham and Abraham sitting outside and, and eating with these angels. And she's just on the other side of the wall, of the tent, listening to the conversation. And they said, about this time, we'll come to you next year and your wife will have a child. And the scripture tells us that Sarah laughed. You know, that's, that's the story I always think of when I think of Sarah. But that's just one small portion in the story of a woman of faith. Did you know that Sarah is the first woman mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter of the heroes of the faith? She is mentioned in the first number of verses, right up there with Abraham and Moses. Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12 says this. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand on the seashore. It's because Sarah had faith. I think Hebrews chapter 1135 kind of refers to her too. It says this. Women received back by faith. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might even rise again to a better life. In a sense... Sarah received Isaac back from the dead. He was as good as dead. We know from the scripture, Abraham was taking him to sacrifice him and God provided a lamb. Sarah received that son back, a resurrection from the dead. See, Sarah is an incredible example of a woman who submitted to her husband. You know, just think about her. Think about their story. He comes home one day. They're living somewhere in the Middle East. And he says, I met God in the wilderness. He told me we should pack our bags and leave all our family, leave my career here, leave our home. And we're going to go to some land and he's going to give us a heavenly city. And we're going to have descent. You crazy Abraham. Come on, wives. How would you respond if your husband came home to you and did that tomorrow after work? Okay. You tell him he was nuts and you tell him, get lost. You're going by yourself. You know, whatever you might say. We have to pack our bags and live as sojourners in tents and look for a heavenly city. You're right, Abraham, over my dead body. But she submitted to Abraham as God led him. You know, when Sarah laughed at the promise of God that she would have that son, as the angels had said, even at that very point, even at that point when she was having a hard time believing the promises of God, she still followed willingly and submitted to her husband, to Abraham. See, ladies, it's a godly thing to be submissive to your husband. And I would say, you know, the wife who hears the dream, the wife who hears the vision, who hears the call of God on her husband, can be tempted to say things like, you're too old, you're untrained. What will happen to us financially? How will you provide? You don't have the right qualifications. You're unskilled. You can do that to your husband. You know, Sarah, in her moment of doubting, chose to submit and respect that man. You know, it's fine to say, here's my perspective. But then it's good to say, but where you feel God's leading, I will follow. I guess the question might be, well, what if it's the wrong decision? Well, what if he is like making what I think is the wrong decision? Do I follow that man? Well, just consider Abraham. 
He's not the sharpest tool in the shed. To escape famine in the land, Abraham headed to Egypt. And once he was there, you remember what he told his wife to do? Because they were relatives. Not only was she his wife, but there was a blood relation. He said, tell the people that you're my sister. Because they're going to see, the Pharaoh is going to see that you're beautiful and he is going to kill me so that he can have you. So just tell them you're my sister. And you know what happens? Pharaoh's men and Pharaoh saw this beautiful woman. They took Sarah and brought her into Pharaoh's harem. And uh, in the process, you know, Abraham gets rich. They give Abraham gifts for his own wife and make him wealthy. And, uh, what happens to Sarah? Abraham let her down. But God didn't. God did not let that woman down. He sent a plague on the house of Pharaoh. So that none of Pharaoh's wives in his harem could, con- could conceive. And Pharaoh realized what was going on. But God protected Sarah, and she was sent home to her husband. See, Abraham was a man of faith, but he wasn't perfect. Sometimes his fears got the better of him. And God protected Sarah. You know, it's really a beautiful story. You know, even though Abraham was going in the wrong direction, God protected Sarah as a result of her obedience. Even when he was acting in fear, God protected her because she was being obedient to the man God had put in her life. You know, when I lead my family in the wrong direction, and certainly it's happened, I've led my family in the wrong direction. You know who God deals with? Me. He deals with me and he directs me. And my wife, when she follows me in obedience, God will always protect her and even enrich her because she trusted God by submitting to her husband. You see what's going on there? That's the picture. See, the most important comment in these verses is this, is that these women that Peter talks about put their hope in God. They put their hope in God. They submitted to their husbands because they believe, not because they believe their husbands were superior, not because they believe their husbands were more spiritual, not because they believe their husbands were more intellectual. They submitted to their husbands because they were confident in God. And they were confident that God would reward them as they obediently followed what his word taught. So wives, you know, don't, you don't need to strive with your husband. Don't strive with them. Peter says, and you are Sarah's children. If you do good and not fear anything that is frightening. Ladies, can I ask you, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid to follow that man? Are you afraid that he won't provide for you? Are you afraid that he's going to lead your family in a wrong direction? Are, are you afraid of not having finances? What, are you afraid of something that doesn't make sense to you? Do you worry because something is out of your ability to control? Look, travel with that man like Sarah traveled with Abraham. That man needs to follow where God is leading him and how he's speaking to him. And your submission is a powerful expression of your trust in God. True submission is full of faith and and it's not about fear. It's full of faith. So I might ask, you know, has, has fear gripped your heart in marriage? I love this idea, idea of dealing with fear because here's how you deal with fear. Fear ex- is exposing idols in your life. You need to follow your fears to your idols and repent. See, at the heart of such fears is the idolatry and the worship of self. You worship yourself. That's why you fear the oppressive hand of a man. But if you worship God and adorn yourself with him, You don't need to fear any man. So ladies, wives, women, you are children of God. Rest in that. Walk by faith. Now we get to the men. 
Is it okay? Can we deal with the men? Are you okay, ladies? Going to kill me later? What's crazy about this is that there's six verses on instructing the women, and there's just one for men. Did you notice that if you were reading ahead this week? You know why? Because God has to keep things simple for us guys, okay? We're slow learners, you know. Ladies, you got the tough job, okay? And I know it's, it's hard to soar like an eagle when you live with a turkey, right? That's what they say. Okay, so verse 7. Check it out. Likewise, in the same manner, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So likewise, in the same manner, equally, not that I'm applying, he's not saying I'm applying the same truths to you, but with the same attitude towards God, you need to follow these particular instructions. What does he say? Live with your wives in an understanding way. Uh, the word for understanding is this cool word, gnosis. Knowledge, signifying general intelligence and understanding. Okay? You need to apply some general intelligence to living with your wife, dudes. And... Um, Move towards deeper things. And so know your wife is the instruction. Know your wife. Understand the woman. Spend your life discovering the woman that God has blessed you with. You know, just try and figure out her mind. Good luck with that. Okay? That's the whole point of what he's saying. There is a lifetime mission here. To discover who this woman is. Is it possible to untangle the web of thoughts and emotions and actually for a guy to get in there and understand what's going on? See, guys, your job is to discover your wife. What makes her tick? What does she love? What drives her nuts? Which is probably you. You know, you'd never know what you'll find when you go on this journey of discovering the woman. It's a challenge, man. It's like, it, to me, it's like this, it's this picture of conquering something. Like a man, you know, it's like, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. I'm going to take new territory. This is an adventure. That's what Peter is talking about here. Now, how do you get to know your wife? Now, here's where God messes with all of us. Right here. It's one of the games that he's played with us and one of the ways that he's wired uh, men and women to be designed for one another. How do you get to know the woman? Something awful happens to us, guys, right here. You have to talk. Wait a minute. Do you remember? Can we go back? Peter tells her not to talk and to act with conduct. And now he says, you need to know your, how do you discover a woman? You actually have to talk. That's tough for some guys. You get to know her by practicing what she loves, which is communication. You know, talking, that two-way thing, the discipline of listening. Guys, we have two ears, one mouth. It's, it's a good thing for a man. You get to know her by practicing what she loves. And you have to be actively involved in communicating with your wife. It was interesting. I stumbled across and it said, the average couple communicates for 37 minutes in a week. That's not enough for a marriage to survive. You have to talk. A great way to get to know your wife and to be actively involved in communication is to do this. Ask her questions. Just ask her questions and then you can sit back and there'll be moments to just zone out. while she. But you ask her questions and you get interested in who she is. And you communicate to her that you're listening. You know, great question. This, this, yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. See, we're in trouble already. I knew I was going down with this one this morning. You know a great question? When your wife is telling you a story, just drop this one in here. Dude, guys, this is like worth a million bucks right here. Ready? How did that make you feel? Money, man. That is money, okay? Your wife wants to talk about her feelings. You don't have to talk about it. Just ask her about her feelings, okay? Ask her what she thinks about that. You know, I prefer to talk about hockey. I prefer to talk about cars. I'm not really interested in talking about feelings, but my wife is. 
And if she can express to us, if your wife, husbands can express to you her feelings and she knows that you're actually listening, it'll create a healthy environment in your marriage, man. Things will start to go good. Okay. Passion. It'll, it'll crank up. Here's another great skill. Practice what they call in marriage counseling, active listening. Do you know what that is? When you actively listen to someone, here's what it is. Active listening is when you simply repeat back in your own words, what you think the other person is saying. It's not a hard thing, but it's a huge thing for a woman coming from a man. Okay. Your wife is talking away. And when you can get a word in, say this. So what I think I hear you saying is this and just repeat it back. And man, it'll be like, it'll be awesome, man. It's a home run. I don't know what else to say. And so Peter says this, live with your wives in an understanding way, guys. Primarily, seek to know the woman. Be, be, live in inquiry, you know, live in investigation of the woman that is in your house. Now, I, I want to yap about something for a second with guys, okay? I'm going over a little bit of time here, but I'm almost done. There's a big sin issue that I want to address that gets in the way, men. It's called porn. And it's important that we talk about guys. I want to say this. Porn is not a, a harmless internet time waster. Porn objectifies women. And it's really an issue of idolatry. Just like I talked about idolatry with women and their fears being a form of idolatry. So for men, it's a, it's a form of prideful self-worship by which you choose to indulge in fantasy and self-gratification when you invest your life into that stuff. See, porn is actually not about sex, but it's about selfishness. Did you know that? It's about selfishness. See, sex is about losing yourself in an act of love for mutual gratification between you and your spouse. Porn is just about being selfish, about self-gratification. It's idolatry. And the reason why I mentioned the danger of porn here is this, is that porn will actually cause you to lose interest in discovering who your wife is. It's the plague of our culture. Instead, men who give themselves over to that begin to neglect their wives. Rather than being on this love journey by which you discover the woman, your wife, she simply becomes this objectified means to an end by which you reach your goal of selfish self-gratification and at the root of it is sinful, sinful idolatry that needs to be repented of. You know, for those husbands who struggle with that, I, I want to give you advice. Uh, if you want to wean yourself off that, you have to meet one extreme with another. Okay, the extreme of neglecting your wife in favor of fantasy images should be countered by showing extravagant love on that woman. Put away the computer, you know, let go of the internet and bask in the glory of a real woman that God has put in your house and seek to know that woman who is your wife. Guys, you are called, you are called, you're instructed by the scripture to know your wives, to understand, to invest your life in the knowledge of knowing that woman. You know what? She deserves to be known. And like I said, it's kind of amazing how two people can live together and not know one another. And that's a sad thing. It's dangerous. Peter says, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. It says, portion to her honor. Assign it to her. Give her the honor she is due. Place value on your wife. And when he calls her the weaker vessel, he's not referencing like, her intellect or her morality or her spirituality, the weaker vessel refers to her physical strength. Because generally speaking, you know, the husband is stronger than his wife. Generally. I mean, I mean, some of you, I'm sure your wives are more ripped than you or whatever. Sorry, guys. I just had to rouse you. Here's why this matters. Here's why you need to apportion to your wife honor. And here's why he needs to mention that she is the weaker vessel. Because how do men appropriate honor? Men honor strength. 
See, that's why in sports, in the sports world, statistics matter. How many points did he get? How big is he? How much does he weigh? You know, one of my boys was recently dealing with a situation, and you won't condone me, but I don't care. I'm going to tell you, because there's certain times when I tell my boys, look it, there's been enough talk in this situation. If that person's a problem, set the boundaries for him. So here's how you do it. Okay, I instruct my boys that. So, you know, I know that's culturally not cool. I don't care. Um, But still, so here's one of the things I had in a conversation with my son recently as he was dealing with a bad situation. I said to him, how big is the kid? Because we're sizing him up on how we're going to deal with this, okay? How big is he? Size him up and see if I need to give him, on, if we need to give this individual honor before the next instruction. See, Eli, you know Eli, he's a WWE nut. And he's always asking me about the guys from when I was a kid. Dad, how big was Andre the Giant? How, how much did he weigh? What is he doing? He's seeking to give honor to this very strong man. Think of Goliath and David. Why did Goliath laugh at David? Because Goliath showed honor based on the appearance of physical strength. And so Peter says to men, your wife's strength is not measured in the same way that you measure a man. You measure him by physical strength. You have to set that aside when you're measuring your wife. You don't apply to her that application of physical strength. So what measurement do you weigh the value of a woman with in marriage? How do you estimate the honor that she is due? And the answer is this, by the grace that's been appropriated to her through Jesus Christ. See, your wife, firstly, before she is your wife, she's a child of God. She's your co-heir. She is a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you have a different role. You have a different function. But as she is in no way you're lesser. Equality is not even in the discussion. You apportioned apportioned to her honor as God has poured out his grace on her life. So, you know, guys, husbands, future husbands, teenage guys, you know, One day you you have that special woman or one day you hope to find that special girl. Listen to me. In a marriage relationship, even before that that marriage, you need to, you know, treat that woman that God has given you with an attitude that puts her on a pedestal, that seeks to enrich enrich her, which hallows her. She is an heir of the grace of God and you should treat her as such. You know, before she is your wife, she's God's child. Single guys, you would do well to remember that before that girl is your girlfriend, she's the king's daughter and your life is in his hands and he'll take it if you mess with his girl. You get it? You treat her with honor. You know, I would, you know Lisa and I practice something in our marriage. I never badmouth my wife to anyone. You'll never hear it come from my mouth. I will not badmouth that woman. I'll put her up here. Does it mean she's perfect? Yes, she's perfect. That's what it means. No, No, but you know what? Certainly I've said things where I've embarrassed her or I've hurt her because I was an idiot. Men tend to do that. But when I realize what I do, I want to go and I want to repent and ask her forgiveness for hurting her. Put her on the pedestal. She, she is not the subject of your conversations outside of your home. You, you hold her in high honor and you put her up there. There's one person in your life you should choose to put on a pedestal. Let it be your wife. Give her the honor she is due. I'm going to wrap up here right now. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is specifically applied to men, this instruction. <clears throat> Men, you hinder your own prayer lives when, when you misappropriate the measure of honor your wife is due. The scripture tells us you need to honor one another above yourselves. 
And the failure to live as a godly husband has spiritual consequences. That's what Peter's saying. There'll be spiritual. God, God will just close his ear to your prayers. You need to hold her in high honor. I would say this, you know, dudes, just help your prayers out. Your conduct should help your prayers, not hinder them. Your behavior in marriage should reflect the prayers that you have for your marriage. Live them out and be trustworthy man. Amen. Let's close there. Sorry, we kept you long. We're not going to close with a song. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we thank you for the great gift of marriage. Lord, I thank you uh, for the woman that you've put in my life. What a blessing, God. And I pray for us men, that God, you'd make us men who honor our wives. I, I thank you, Lord, for the challenge of this passage of scripture, that you call us to know, to know that woman. And Lord, I pray that we would, in our own hearts, take up that challenge to seek to know her, know who she is and what she loves and what she's about. Lord, we thank you for the instructions that your scripture gives about women. They're not necessarily easy, but God, it's how you've ordained marriage and designed it to work. Lord, we live in a culture where it's crumbling and collapsing around us. We ask you, God, that as we apply these principles, as we do them like exercise, that you'd bless our marriages, that you'd make them fruitful, that you'd make them long-lasting. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.